0: Today's episode of Truth and Justice is sponsored by Viceland TV and Stamps.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and thank you all for tuning in today. As you might have noticed from the title, today's episode is a triple header. I'm juggling quite a few things between all three cases that we're working right now. So I decided to take this episode and give you an update on all three cases. So today's episode will be broken down into three segments. In the first segment, I'm going to bring you up to date with new developments and where we're going with the Smith County, Texas case. After that, we'll take a break for an ad, and in segment number two, I'll be updating you all on my position with the Anand Syed heyman Lee murder case. That'll be followed by another short break for the second ad. And then the third segment today will be about the third case we're working, which is the Abinicio Cordoba Wilson case, or Abby. So if any of you listening to this have not listened to bonus episode 301, you may want to hit pause, go back, and listen to that short 25-minute episode so you'll know what I'm talking about when I get to the third segment. I also want to take this opportunity to give you all a heads up as to what's coming next week. Next week's show will also be divided into two segments. For the first segment, hopefully you'll be hearing an interview with Jeffrey Discovich. I met Jeff this past weekend at the gala in Baltimore. Jeff is one of the keynote speakers, and he is an actual exoneree. He was convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. It was later released when DNA evidence proved his innocence. Since then, Jeffrey has started the Jeffrey Discovich Foundation for Justice, and he's an advocate for other people who have been wrongly convicted. Jeff's case is very similar to both Adnan's and Kenny Snow's and Edward Eight's. But as long as we're able to get our schedules together, it should be a really interesting interview. For the second half of the show next week, I want to do another listener call-in. Given the complexity of the Smith County case and also juggling two and three cases at a time, plus starting to investigate the next big case that we're going to take on after Smith County, I haven't had a lot of time to let you be heard on the podcast. So rather than just read emails next week, I want to give you the opportunity to call in and ask any questions that you might have. Now, I will be tweeting this out next week to let you all know when the phones go live. But if you're interested in calling in, go ahead and write this down in your planner. Next week on Tuesday, that's March 15th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I will be opening up the phone lines. So that's next Tuesday, March 15th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Now that's the plan, so maybe give or take a few moments. But for those of you that are on Twitter, keep watching the Truth and Justice feed to see when the phones go open. I'll also be retweeting the number. If you don't use Twitter, go ahead and write this down. Again, Tuesday, March 15th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And the phone number you'll be calling is 269 224 28 That's 269-224-2833. Now for any of you that think you might want to give me a call at home and pick my brain a little bit, that is a transfer number and it's deactivated until I turn it on. I may not be the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm not giving my home phone number out to 200,000 people. So mark that on your calendars. I look forward to hearing from as many of you as possible next week. Again, Tuesday the 15th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. But for now, let's get started with today's episode with segment number one, an update on the Smith County case. This case in Smith County, Texas, is turning out to be one of the most complex, interesting cases that I've ever even heard about. And I want to take a moment here to address some of the fans who have sent me emails or messages telling me that they just can't get into this case. First of all, I want to say with all of you, everybody has different opinions. Everybody has different things that they like and don't like, and I totally respect that. But I just want to take a moment here to go on the record and let you all know that while what we're doing may be entertaining in a way, it's not about entertainment. The primary mission and purpose behind truth and justice is criminal justice reform. We accomplish that mission by exposing corruption, assembling thousands of people behind a movement, Using all of these resources, whether they be helping with research, development of the show, financial donations to certain causes, whatever the case may be, even just listening and helping spread the word about what's happening, all of us together can make a difference. It's a very new thing that we're doing here. We're investigating cases that have been forgotten about by all of the public officials that should be investigating them. We're doing what no one else can do. And I completely understand that Kenny Snow may not have the charisma and the dynamic of the young Anand Syed. But you have to understand that it's not about that. It's not about whether you like Adnan or you like Kenny Snow or you like Edward Aits or you like Abby. This is about the system. And it's about injustices. And it's about corruption. So please don't take this as me scolding anyone who's not thoroughly interested in the case that we're discussing right now. It's not that at all. I'm simply explaining to you why we are taking on the cases that we're taking on. And the Smith County case is about a lot more than just Kenny Snow. I'm not to a point right now where I can tell you for certain, one way or the other, whether Kenny Snow is innocent or guilty. I can tell you that the investigation was corrupt, documents have been falsified, illegal deals were struck under the table by a corrupt assistant district attorney. And we're looking at corruption that goes even to the level of having someone walk into a courtroom and impersonate a victim to give a victim statement. And regarding that, just an update, I've been in constant communication with the court reporter. She was out of town for about a week and a half, and she emailed me early this week letting me know that she just found out that the files are not with her, that she has to file to get them out of storage. She should be working on that today. If those transcripts from that sentencing hearing confirm what Kenny Snow has told me, We will have a legitimate case to take to the Department of Justice with proven extreme, extreme corruption. Also, I know a lot of you probably haven't read the book that I suggested, Chasing Justice by Carrie Max Cook, or Smith County Justice by David Ellsworth, but for those of you that haven't read those books, you need to be aware of the fact that when I say this is about more than just Kenny Snow, that is an understatement. This type of corruption is not uncommon in Smith County. There are many documented cases that involve these same characters, the same district attorneys, the same judges, the same police officers that have abused their power to put innocent men and women in jail. They keep a very high conviction rate, and by doing so, they maintain that sweet, small-town image that Tyler, Texas has. I've traveled down to Tyler twice while investigating this case, and both times my experiences have been wonderful. The town is full of a lot of wonderful, great, kind people. And I understand why many of those people tell me that Tyler is a great place to live. But what I'm finding in digging through all these old cases, because i started to look into more than just Kenny Snow and Carrie Max Cook and Edward Aits, is that Tyler is a great place to live as long as you live above the poverty line. For anyone that falls below that, it is actually a very scary place to live. I mentioned at the end of last week's episode that I had made contact with Julio Martinez. Julio is the son of Juan Martinez, who was the victim in the second robbery. Juan Martinez does not speak very much English at all, so Julio translated for him during the entire investigation with the police officers back in 1997. When I spoke with Julio, he seems like a very nice guy, and he was willing to talk to me, but you could tell he was just doing it out of respect. He really doesn't want anything to do with any of this. It was actually one of my listeners that first reached out to Julio, so he already knew this was coming and he had discussed the situation with his father prior to my call. So because of this, I didn't keep Julio on the phone very long. I just had a few specific questions to ask him. I was trying to determine if the situation that happened with Bill Cole also happened with Juan Martinez. As you'll remember, the police reports indicate that Bill Cole was shown mugshots on two separate occasions and identified somebody in both occasions. Bill says that's not true. He was only ever showed mugshots once. I do have in the police files two different sheets that show that Bill Cole signed off that he had identified someone in a mugshot. I showed that paperwork to Bill Cole while I was in Texas, and he agreed that they both looked like his signature, but he's still certain that he was only shown mugshots once, and he says that it was only a couple of days after the robbery occurred. The police reports indicate that he was shown mugshots just a couple of days after, and then another week after that is when he identified Kenny Snow. Mr. Cole believes that on that second report that his signature was forged. Now, because we're dealing with memories from nearly two decades ago, it's hard to concretely say that this document was falsified. Knowing that you never walked into a courtroom and spoke is one thing, but remembering how many times you were shown a mugshot book is another. I believe Bill Cole, but I wanted to hear from Juan Martinez as to whether he experienced the same thing. So first, in looking through the police files, I see that Detective Bobby Van Ness documented that he had shown Juan Martinez mugshots on three separate occasions. But further into the documents, there's a written statement signed by Juan Martinez. The statement says that his son Julio translated this to him. And in that written statement, it says that he was shown mugshots one time. I also only found one of those sheets in the documents where Juan had signed off on a mugshot identification. Now, that could be irrelevant because the reports don't say that he specifically identified anybody the first two times. So I asked Julio how many times his father was shown mugshots. And he again, just like Bill Cole, said it was only ever one time. He said they brought him in a mugshot book with about three pages, and his dad identified somebody on one of those pages. He assumed that person ended up being Kenny Snow. So now we have two separate, independent witnesses who both say that the police reports were fabricated. I also asked Julio if he or his dad ever went to court during the sentencing or any other time for Kenny Snow's case. And he said no. Once he identified him in the mugshot book, they never really heard anything ever again. And another interesting point when I was talking about Kenny Snow with Julio is that he interrupted me and said it wasn't just one person. He said that his dad was jumped by two or three people. He couldn't remember if it was two or three. Now you might remember the police reports indicate that one person had tried to spray Juan in the face with mace, Juan was able to knock it out of his hand, a fight ensued, Juan's statement says that the fight went on for quite a while, that he eventually tripped, then a second person came in and took the money from him. Julio says that his dad doesn't remember it that way. He said that as he remembers it, his dad was rushed by two people right from the beginning and that he fought off both of them for a little while before they finally overcame him, took his money, and ran out the door. He also said that the reason he called the police to come back and get the blood sample from the floor was because he had injured one of the assailants. So when he saw the blood drops leading out the door where the assailants left, he knew that blood had come from the person who had just robbed him. Now in Kenny Snow's arresting documents, it doesn't indicate that he had any kind of cuts or scratches anywhere on his body. If you listen to the full unrecorded bonus episode of Kenny Snow's interview, you heard at one point Detective Van Ness asking him about the cut over his eye. Those are the only marks that Kenny Snow had, and those marks were from an old scar. Kenny's knuckles were also roughed up a little bit, which he says during the interview was from working on his car. So like I had said before, I can't say one way or the other definitively if Kenny Snow is innocent or guilty of these robberies. But what I can say is that it seems pretty obvious that the police went out of their way to arrest him and that for some reason they felt the need to cover their tracks. This situation with Bill Cole not appearing in court is huge. If Kenny Snow was actually the one that robbed these two stores, and remember the only one he confessed to is the one at Bill's used tire, then I would have a hard time coming up with an explanation as to why they couldn't just have Bill Cole come to that sentencing hearing. Why would they have to have someone else come in and identify Kenny Snow and give a statement if Kenny really was the one who had committed the robbery? Now those are just the facts of the case regarding the actual robberies, but there is a lot bigger picture here. After watching the interrogation videos, it seems pretty obvious that the person who called Crime Stoppers was Kenny's former boxing manager, Joe Costello. When you look at the big picture as a whole, this is very troubling. For starters, Joe Costello would have no knowledge of the robbery actually occurring. Kenny wasn't with him. Joe was bothering him about signing a contract for this next big fight. Kenny was actually signed with another manager out of Dallas. So Costello was keeping tabs on him, but he would have no way of knowing or having any knowledge of whether or not he committed these robberies. Then you have the fact that Dennis Murphy, the FBI agent, confirmed to us that Johnny Johnson, who was later assigned to be Kenny's parole officer, identified himself to Agent Murphy as Kenny Snow's manager and continually requested, almost to the point of harassment, for Dennis to help keep Kenny out of jail so that he could keep boxing. There was physical evidence collected at the scene that could have proven whether or not Kenny Snow committed these robberies, and it was never tested. Later, when Kenny asked to have it tested, the evidence was destroyed, and it was destroyed illegally. Tyler P.D. was required by Texas state law to maintain and preserve that evidence. There's also the fact that short of that evidence that was never tested and then later destroyed, there is absolutely nothing, no evidence whatsoever to indicate that Kenny Snow committed these robberies, other than the fact that Kenny Snow confessed to one of them. That's one of the reasons that I want to have Jeff on the show next week to talk about what happened with him and his study of other wrongful convictions and how these things happen. Jeff Duskovich was convicted of a crime that he did not commit, and it was proved that he did not commit it through DNA evidence. The reason that Jeff ended up in prison for all those years was that he confessed he confessed to a crime that he didn't commit. So for those of you that think that never happens, definitely tune in next week. Now as far as Kenny's case goes, we're going to be hitting pause on that for a short time while we sort out some leads, and we're going to shift over to the person who I think was actually the target in Smith County back in 1997, and that's Edward Eights. I've been in regular communication with Ed Aitz. We're trying to work out now all the hoops that we have to jump through to get him to be able to call me. Ed Aitz is serving a 99-year sentence for a rape and murder that after looking through the case files and the evidence, I believe there's a strong chance that he did not commit. Ed was arrested for raping and murdering Elnora Griffin. I've seen the crime scene photos, and this was a horrendous scene. Elnora was raped. Her throat was slit. There were bodily fluids all over the place. And in fact, some of those bodily fluids are the reason Ed H. was arrested in the first place. Ed knew Elnora. The day her body was discovered, he had pulled up to her neighborhood, he saw the medics working inside the scene, and he and another person ran up to the door to see what happened. While the medical crew was inside, Ed was told to stay out that he couldn't go in there. He didn't listen, he took a couple steps inside before he was again told to get out. There was fecal material present throughout that crime scene. The next day, Ed was brought in for questioning, and when he left the office, a sample was taken off the floor that was believed to come from Ed H. shoe. The detective believed the material to be human feces. He sent it to the lab to be tested, and it came back that it was indeed human feces. It was never DNA tested or anything like that, but on those grounds, Ed H. was arrested. The prosecution had little to nothing to go on when they took Ed H. to trial, and they ended up with a hung jury. When looking through the file, I found all of the notes that the jurors were writing back and forth to the judge. And the numbers bounced between six to six to five guilty to seven innocent. They went back and forth for quite a while before they eventually determined that they were not going to come to a conclusion, and a hung jury was declared. Ed Ait's had then bonded out, and the state worked for two more years to bring him back to trial. The problem was that they still didn't have any real evidence against Edward Ait's. That's where Kenny Snow came into the picture. While he was sitting in the Smith County Jail, all we know for certain that is documented is that he agreed to testify for the prosecution that Ed Aites had asked him to say that someone else committed the crime. According to the official record, Kenny Snow was not given any deal for this, and he only did it as a concerned citizen. Now we know that Kenny's allegations are that David Dobbs and Dennis Murphy came to him and told him that if he would do this, that if he would make up this false testimony, and that leads to Ed Aites' conviction, that they would let him out with probation. Now, the prosecution denies that this ever happened, but what we do know is that Kenny Snow was held in the Smith County Jail for nearly two years. We know that the person who was convicted of being his accomplice in this robbery was sentenced in October of 1997, and Kenny still continued to sit in that prison for over a whole nother year. He was sentenced on November 12, 1998. Eights was convicted on August 13, 1998. So again, Kenny says that he was made to stay in the jail until after AITS was convicted for his deal to go through. The timeline seems to support that. Now again, the prosecution says that there was no deal made with Kenny Snow, but Kenny had pled guilty to the simple robbery and the aggravated robbery. The aggravated robbery charge alone holds a maximum of a 99-year sentence. It also comes with a minimum sentence of 25 years. Kenny Snow was already a convicted felon. He was on parole when these occurred and he was given a sentence of 10 years deferred adjudication probation. In my opinion, the prosecution can claim that there was no deal all day long, but it is painfully obvious that Kenny Snow was given a deal to help convict Edward Eights. Now, I said earlier that I believe that Ed Eights is innocent. My main reason for believing that is that in the discovery file of Eights' case, there's a document that explains that there was blood and semen collected from the victim's bed. And by looking at the crime scene photos, it's obvious that the bed is where the rape occurred and probably also where her throat was initially slit, or at least the struggle ensued there. The blood and semen were sent to the lab for testing, but not DNA testing. They were just tested for blood type. Luckily for Ed Eights, he and Elnora Griffin had different blood types, and the samples of both the blood and the semen came back to be a different blood type from both of them. The document actually says on it that both Elnora and Ed were excluded as the donors for both the blood and the semen. After Ed Eights was convicted, he also requested that that evidence be tested for DNA. And again, in Smith County, the DNA evidence, in his case, is documented as being lost. It says that while being transported between the trial court and the appellate court, that the DNA evidence disappeared, which, by the way, I also find ridiculous, because I was able to look through the evidence box. Everything else is in there. Ed H's shoes are still in that box. The vial with the fecal material is still in the box. All of the evidence from that crime scene is still in that box, except the blood and semen sample. So what we have here in Smith County is a pattern, a pattern of corruption. Smith County also has quite a reputation for using jailhouse informants to get their convictions. The same thing happened in Carrie Max Cook's case. A jailhouse snitch was used to help convict Kerry Max Cook, and he was given a deal for doing so. But as soon as he was released, he recanted his statement. By not continuing to press on in Smith County, with Kenny's case and Edward Eight's case, we will be sitting back and allowing these injustices to continue to happen. We have to keep pressing on. We have got to put a stop to the corruption and the abuse of power that is happening in Smith County, Texas. Any of you who have been on social media at all over the last week are aware that I made a statement at the Night for Justice Gala that got a lot of people's attention, a lot of it was very good attention, and there are also a lot of people who were pissed off about it. I've wrestled all week with how to handle this. The reason that people are upset is because they say that I accused an innocent man of murder without any proof. So my struggle was, do I address the issue and set the record straight, but by doing so, I multiply the audience that had already heard it into a much greater number of people, or do I just sit back and let it blow over? And by doing so, limit the number of people that have heard what I said. After a lot of thought, I've decided to address the issue here, rather than get into a bunch of online battles with not just trolls, because there are a lot of those, but there are also a lot of good people, well-meaning, who may very well be right on the issue, who have stated that they disagree with what I've done. So first of all, let me tell you what happened, if you don't already know. At the Night for Justice Gala, there was a panel. Myself, Susan Simpson, Rabia Chowdhury, and Colin Miller all sat on the stage to answer questions by Seema Iyer. Seema was relaying questions that many people had asked on Twitter and other social media. The last question that Seema asked was about plan b the defense. And what that means is that in many cases like this, the best defense is to offer an alternative suspect. It's also one of the things that the undisclosed team has been the most criticized about, that they haven't produced a viable alternative suspect. Now, in regards to that, I will not speak for the undisclosed team. I do not have the right to do that. But what I will say is for any lawyer, anyone in that profession, they really can't come out and say, this person did it or I believe this person did it without absolute undeniable proof that that happened. That being said, Seema's follow-up question to that was, do we have a theory as to what happened to Heyman Lee, and who do we believe actually killed her? Now, this is also a question that has been asked of me many, many times. And as I've mentioned on the show before and on social media, it was a question that I just wasn't comfortable answering. And the reason for that is that I do not have absolute, undeniable proof of who killed Heyman Lee. When Seema asked the question, my initial thought was to do what I always do and not answer it. As I was contemplating what to do about this, Robbie, Susan, and Colin had all given their answers and basically said exactly what I said earlier, that they can't really say. Susan actually said that she doesn't think that we'll solve the case, that there's too much physical evidence gone and things like that. And I was sitting there, I was just getting pissed off. Not at Susan or Robbie or Colin or anybody else. I was pissed off because of the way that Seema had worded the question it was really occurring to me that all of this happened. Anon sitting in prison, Haman Lee's death, everything is because someone else killed her. Some person, somewhere, committed this murder, and countless lives have been affected by it. And I do have a theory, and I do have a case. Now, as I said at the gala, and I'll repeat here, I am not saying that there is irrefutable 100% proof that this person committed this crime. But there is a case to be made. And on that topic, for any of you who saw the video on Reddit, you need to understand that the people that posted this on Reddit intentionally clipped the beginning of my statement off. I started my statement at the gala by saying, I want to make crystal clear that this is only my opinion. This is just my theory. I speak only for myself. This is what I think. I said that this evidence is circumstantial. And I believe my exact words were, it doesn't prove anything. But if you're asking me what my theory on the case is, I believe that Hay's boyfriend, Don, killed her. Now, for starters, I think most of you probably already knew that that's what I believe. But I want to set the record straight for those people that are on social media saying that I accused an innocent man of murder. I believe in the presumption of innocence. I believe in it very strongly. I believe that assumptions and circumstantial evidence are the reason Anand Syed was convicted, or even targeted in the investigation to begin with. I am not accusing Don of murder. I am not saying that Don killed Hay. What I said, what I am still saying today, is that if you're asking me what I believe, what my theory is, is that Don murdered Hay. I am not a lawyer. I am not a cop. I do not represent the undisclosed team. I do not represent the legal trust fund. I speak for only myself. My investigation has been ongoing even though I'm not talking about the case on the podcast. And I'm not the only one involved in this investigation. There are several experts in several fields that are helping along the way. And I also want to make clear that none of those experts include anyone from the undisclosed team. No one on that team has any idea what I've been working on. And that is by design. Susan, Colin, and Rabia are three very skilled lawyers who are doing an amazing job of working the legal part of this case. I do not want in any way, shape, or form my investigation to get in the way of what they are doing. The evidence that I have regarding Don, as I stated at the gala, is circumstantial evidence. I also stated at the Gala that that is not enough to convict. Seema did point out that circumstantial evidence can be used to convict, and I don't disagree with that. What I should have said is that I don't think someone should be convicted solely on circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence is not physical proof, but it is not useless either. Circumstantial evidence can be used to tell where someone was on a particular day or where they weren't. Things like forensic countermeasures are circumstantial evidence. And as an example of that, in Don's case, take his timesheets. Don was not at work the day Heyman Lee was killed. Don told investigators that he was at work that day. And a step was taken to create a timesheet to make it appear as though he was at work that day. That is circumstantial evidence. And it's obviously a huge red flag. Not only does he now not have an alibi, but falsifying an alibi is a forensic countermeasure. It's an active step that was taken to put the police off of his trail. Now that sounds huge, it sounds big, and it is in a way. But is that enough to convict someone? It might be. You might be able to convince a jury to convict someone on solely that evidence. But should you is the question. And my answer to that is no. Could that mean that an alibi was created to hide the fact that Don killed Hay? Yes, it could mean that. But there are also a million other reasons someone could give for why he did that. He could just be afraid that the police are after him and he's trying to cover his tracks even though he didn't do it. He could have been doing something else that day that he wasn't supposed to be doing that he doesn't want the police to know about or his family to know about. So that issue alone does not make Don guilty. None of the things that have been discussed on the podcast so far make Don guilty. And I'll be honest with you, there is more information that has been uncovered And the answer to your question is no, that cannot be shared right now. And that's not me playing a game or holding a carrot in front of your face that I know something that you don't. By necessity, no matter how much any troll tries to get it out, these things cannot be discussed in public right now. But just to break down other circumstantial evidence that we know about Don, we know that he was contacted by the police about Hay missing around 6 to 7 o'clock at night. We know that the police didn't make contact with him until about 1.30 in the morning. New police files that have recently been released seem to indicate that that contact was Joe O'Shea calling Don. But that issue is still not completely clear, whether Don contacted him or he contacted Don. But the way it's written, it appears that Detective O'Shea is the one who reached back out to Don at 1 or 1.30 in the morning. So we have an alibi issue while the crime was being committed. We have a forensic countermeasure to hide the fact that he was not at work when the crime was being committed. We have an alibi issue for the hours after the crime, which would have been when the body concealment happened. We know from the lividity evidence that Hay was left laying somewhere. It was likely buried somewhere around the 10, 11, 12 o'clock hour. We don't know where Don was during that time. Now, unfortunately for Don, the reason we don't know that is because the police did not properly investigate him. Maybe he was at the arcade with his buddies during that time. We just don't know, because they never asked. But again, this is circumstantial evidence. Don's behavior after Hay went missing is troubling. He said on Serial that he doesn't believe he ever tried to call or page Hay after she went missing. Now, do we know that he did or did not? No, because again, the police didn't investigate that. But the fact that Don went on the record to say that he doesn't think that he did could be construed as an attempt to cover his tracks. He knows that the case is being investigated. He knows that if he says that he did call her, that it could be proven later that he didn't. Or it could just be that he doesn't remember. We know that Mandy from the Anihi group contacted Don early. Her reports indicate that Don seemed to have an emotional detachment from Hay. Paraphrased, it seemed like he just didn't care. It also appears that Don may be the beginning of the California rumor. The first statement that I believe we have on record of anyone saying that she might have run off to California came from Don. We also have changing stories from Don. He originally told the police that she didn't have any plans to go anywhere. But then in a later interview, he tells police that she said she was going to run off to California and even said specifically which parking lot she would keep her car in. That, again, is troubling circumstantial evidence, a changing story, and a forensic countermeasure. Sending the police off on a red herring, looking in a different direction in order to take the heat off of yourself, is troubling. Now, is it troubling all in and of itself? No, but when you compile it with all of these other issues, it starts to become very concerning. If Hay had spoke specifically just the night before about running away and parking her car in a specific parking lot, why wouldn't Don tell the police that the next day? Put yourself in that situation. Your girlfriend tells you she's thinking about running away and where specifically she might keep her car. The next day, you get a call from the police that she went missing and it doesn't occur to you to tell them that she had told you she was going to run away and where her car might be. Instead, you tell them she had no plans of going anywhere, but then later change your story and add this runaway plan. Then you have the fact that Don didn't follow Hay's trial, from what he says, but then he also says that he was in love with Hay and that he still loves her today. When Serial comes out and contacts him and tells them they're doing a story about Hay, he wants nothing to do with it, which that's understandable. Different people deal with these types of grief in different ways. But then later, after a few episodes go by, and all of a sudden Don's not starting to look so great, he decides to call and give a statement. But he won't do a recorded interview. He basically just gives a statement, lets Sarah repeat his talking points, and fades back into the distance. Then bring yourself to 2015. I reach out to Don. Don's mother and Don's stepmother. Before any of you heard any of the case that I had against Don months ago, I took the information that I had to them. I told Don that I was investigating the case and I found some things that are troubling and I'd like to get his statement on them because I want to make sure that I report both sides of the story. He declined to comment. I told his mother the same thing, never got a response from her. The stepmother, I laid out specifically everything that I had, what I knew about her involvement. Don's mother's involvement, all of it. And I told her again, I want to give you the opportunity to set the record straight. If something is wrong here or I'm missing something, please tell me because I don't want to report this incorrectly. She responded by telling me not to contact her again. So a couple of things on that issue. Number one, I want to make clear to everyone that I'm not just reporting these things and not giving Don and his family a chance to defend themselves. I've given them that offer, and it's their right not to respond, and they don't owe me a response but I have given them ample opportunity to do so. But on another point, analyzing that behavior, which I understand really isn't evidence of anything because you can't really predict other people's behaviors. I'm aware of that. But I guess I can speak for myself. If I was completely innocent of something and someone was reporting that I, say, falsified a time card or that I confirmed an alibi when I knew that it wasn't true, I would at the very least be telling that person that that's a lie and it's not true if not making a public statement about it or even taking further action. Now, again, I'll point out that I'm aware that that could just be a personality thing. Don could be completely innocent of this, and he and his family just don't want to talk about it anymore. That's a possibility. And lastly, something that I skipped over was the seven-hour phone conversation with Debbie. As I mentioned on the show before, I've spoken with many of Don's classmates from high school. The overwhelming consensus, actually the unanimous consensus, is that Don really didn't have people skills. He didn't like talking to people. He completely kept to himself to the point where people that sat right next to him in class couldn't remember his name or don't remember ever having a conversation with him. But then he has this seven-hour conversation with Debbie. And Debbie says in her interview that she believed that Don had committed the murder, but that Don convinced her in that phone call otherwise. The fact that Don took seven hours to talk to Debbie to convince her that not only was he not involved in the murder, but also that he believes that Adnan did it, is another forensic countermeasure. Again, he's trying to point people in another direction. Now, could that be because he's actually innocent? Sure. In which case, of course, it wouldn't be considered a countermeasure. It would just be him trying to clear his name because he's innocent. And lastly, we have Debbie's statement to the police that she believed that on the last day Hay was seen alive, as she was leaving the school, she told her that she was going to see Don. Now, I'll remind you that no one says that Hay was going to see Adnan or that she was going somewhere with Adnan. We have people that witnessed Adnan asking for a ride, but then Hay also turning him down for that ride and not leaving with him. But we have at least one witness who remembers Hay saying she was going to meet Don. So that is a summary of the circumstantial evidence just that's been addressed on the podcast. The big one, of course, being the alibi. And I'm aware that there are Redditors out there that have even crossed over to Twitter to say that there's no evidence of this, that I lied, there's no proof, and that's simply not true. If I was lying about that, I would be subjecting myself to lawsuits by Luxottica, LensCrafters, every manager that I've named. All of these conversations are well documented, and no, I'm not making those documents available to random Redditors who think that they're entitled to them. They are saved and filed to back me up in case this is ever called into question by anyone official. Another statement that's come up lately is that I lied about calling the Hunt Valley LensCrafters because that store no longer exists. And that question has been asked and answered a hundred times. These people know the answer to it. Way back last summer, I googled the Hunt Valley LensCrafters store. The closest one that came up was in Townsend. I called that store... A woman answered. I explained to her who I was and what I was doing, and she cut me off mid-sentence and said she's very familiar with the case, and that she took over as the manager shortly after it happened, and that I would have to call corporate. I then, of course, called corporate, and you all know the story from there. And while the Redditors are correct, the Hunt Valley store is closed. I did not lie to any of you. I've never lied to any of you, nor would I ever. When the Hunt Valley store closed the employees, many of them, shifted over to this other store, including specifically this general manager. So this is not some big conspiracy. It was a nothing phone call. All she did was tell me to call the corporate office, and that's what I did. Now getting back to Don, any one of these single circumstantial issues would not be enough to say that I believe that Don killed Hay. But when I compile all of those issues, And when I take into account everything that we know about Don, which admittedly is not a lot, he fits perfectly for the prime suspect, the one person in this entire case, that I have not found any evidence to indicate that he did not do it. And again, I want to reiterate, does that mean that he's guilty? No, it doesn't. Now, like I said before, there is a lot more evidence that has been uncovered. And I will tell you up front, that also is all circumstantial evidence. There are witnesses that have been contacted. There are tracks that have been uncovered. But it's still in the category of circumstantial at this point. That is why I said that I believe my personal theory is that Don is the one that killed Hay. It is also why I said that this is not proof and that this is only my statement, my personal theory. Much like along the way I've had a theory that Jay did it, that Jen did it, I've considered Roy Sharoni-Davis. We've all stated theories publicly along the way. But if you go all the way back to episode number two, I explained my investigative method. I gather as much evidence as I can. I use that evidence to develop a theory. Then I go back to the evidence and dig for more evidence to see if I can shoot holes in that theory. I started with a theory that non did it, and there are way too many holes. I looked at Jay, but there are too many holes in Jay's story. Jen, Jay and Jen together. Roy Davis, Ronald Lee Moore, but when I look at the case against Don, I have yet to find that one thing that says, oh wait, this gives me pause, or here is a good indication that he didn't do it. I haven't found any of that, and so all of you know, that is the process that I'm going through now, is a deeper dive to try to find evidence that would contradict this theory, and so far, I have yet to find that. Now, regarding the future investigation, first of all, I want to say that any form of mob mentality, vigilantism, needs to not happen. Do not harass Don or his family or interfere with his life in any way. One of the concerns that many people have had is that this is unfair to Don to affect his life in this way when he still has the presumption of innocence, and I agree with that. That being said, I believe this investigation is necessary. Many people have said, why not just turn it over to the police? Why not let them do it? The reason is that they won't. No one is going to investigate this case through official, normal channels, as long as Adnan Sayed is still in prison. I've been told to take the case to the Baltimore Police Department, and that idea is simply laughable. To even consider the fact that the Baltimore PD would think about reopening this case and investigating another suspect while Adnan is still in prison. It's not going to happen. So I feel driven to continue this investigation. But please, as much as I appreciate all of your support, this investigation has reached the point where everyone needs to back off. It just has to be that way at this point. Along those lines, moving forward from here, I will not be discussing the investigation into Don on the podcast at all anymore until if and when solid forensic proof is obtained. The next time you will hear me bring up Don would only be for me to tell you I have proof that this happened, or that I have proof that it didn't happen. And again, I know that that is upsetting for some of you, but there are reasons why it just has to be that way. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to discuss this case at all anymore. There will likely still be more episodes. I know that Jim Clemente and Laura Richards still want to get together and go through some post-offense behavior analysis, and that is still the plan. There have been some circumstances that have come up that I don't want to discuss here, but there's a reason why the schedules haven't lined up over the last month or so. Now, the last thing that I want to address on this topic is that some of the people who were upset about what I said said that part of the reason they were upset by it is because of where I said it, that I said it at this gala, and that it was not the venue for me to speak out like that. And my response to that is I was invited to the gala, I was asked to be on the panel, I was specifically asked that question on the panel, and I chose to answer it. So that's the answer to your question of why at that venue. I didn't just blurt this out at the gala. Again, I was specifically asked that question on the panel. And I chose to answer it because I was the only one on that panel that could answer it. I don't represent a law firm. I don't represent a trust. I don't represent a group of podcasters. I stand alone with the backing of only you all of you listeners i am the voice for you any consequence that i have or anything that i say falls on me and i take the responsibility and i chose that night to take that responsibility and that's a burden that i will continue to bear because with this in any other case that comes my way i will see it through to the end For the last segment today, I want to discuss our new case of Abby Cordoba Wilson. I decided to take on Abby's case because the more I looked into it, the more it pissed me off. Like I mentioned on the previous episode, Abby's situation was that he was literally driving down the road, obeying every law, doing nothing wrong. He was stopped by an officer for no reason. The reason that he gave of a dim license plate light was total BS. There are a few people that have said that Abhi should have just shut his mouth and not antagonized the officer. And I do not disagree with that. And I've told Abbie that. But the fact of the matter is, what we're saying is that we need to sit back and allow our rights to be violated and not do anything about it because we might piss off the cop and he might make it worse for us, which is exactly what happened in Abbie's case. Should he have shut up and not asked the officer to stop searching his car, that's what I would have done, especially knowing that there's nothing illegal in the car. Abby did not help himself by challenging the officer on this issue. What the officer did, in my opinion, after consulting several attorneys, was a violation of the law. It was a violation of Abbie's Fourth Amendment right to not have an illegal search done on him. Officers do have the right to look in your car with a flashlight in anything that they see in plain view, which means from outside of the vehicle, can be used against you. They do not have the right to enter your car and search areas that are not in plain view from outside of the vehicle. And I know you couldn't see that in the video that be posted, but from the dash cam video, it's very clear. The officer enters into his car and starts searching around with a flashlight. He was looking in the back seat, behind the seats, and between the two front seats when Abby finally told him to please get out of his car. And he was polite about it. He didn't say, get the F out of my car. He said, can you please stop searching my car? You do not have the right to do this. That's what set the officer off. And for those of you that might argue whether or not what he was doing was okay and if it was in plain view where he was searching, the lawyer that we spoke to yesterday made it pretty clear to me by explaining if that officer had found, say, a bag of marijuana between those two front seats, that evidence would not be allowed to be used in court. It would have been considered an illegal search and therefore not admissible in court. The question is coming in here because the officer didn't actually find anything, even on the full search that he did of the vehicle after Abby was arrested. But whether or not he should or shouldn't have confronted the officer about it is not the question here. The question is, did he have the legal right to? And the answer to that question is yes. Now, we did discuss with Avi's attorney whether or not the officer assaulted him by threatening to rip him out of the car by his face. And the answer to that question is no. And the reason is because he put a condition on it. Apparently, it's not assault to say, if you do this, I'm going to do this. The officer had said, if you try and close the door, I'm going to rip you out of the car by your face. Had he just said, I'm going to rip you out of the car by your face, then it would be considered assault. That being said, it was still a clear threat. It was unprofessional, and is something that is not allowed by the Michigan State Police. As I mentioned before, the officer is being investigated by Internal Affairs, and his supervisors do not condone what he did there. But with all that being said, I want to talk about the major development in this case. And that major development is that because of all of you, Abby now has a good criminal defense attorney, a former prosecutor. See, Abby doesn't have any money, and so he was given a court-appointed attorney. He had tried to call that attorney for nearly a week and could not get a call back. Finally, last Thursday, he left a message with the secretary saying that there's this video and that it's gone viral and that he wants to talk to his attorney. The attorney then did call him back and basically told him, You're screwed. Hopefully, we'll get a plea. Abbie asked to meet with him, and the attorney told him that he'd meet him at court this Thursday. This is Wednesday when I'm recording this. Right now, Abby's probable cause examination is scheduled for tomorrow at 1.30 p.m. And his court-appointed attorney was planning to walk into that meeting without ever speaking to Abby without ever looking at any evidence, nothing. His plan was just to walk in and take a plea deal. That's why Abby needed a good criminal defense attorney because he wants to defend himself against this. As you might have guessed from the video, Abi is a man of principle. Whether you agree with his actions or not, one thing I will say for Abi is that he will stand up for what he believes is right. Abi needed $3,500 to retain an attorney. As of yesterday, when we walked into that lawyer's office, all of you had helped to crowdfund $4,000, which is more than enough for Abi to pay the initial retainer to his attorney. In that meeting, she went over the case, she looked at the videos, looked at the photos, and believes that we have a strong defense. Right from the start, if it was an illegal stop, which all the evidence seems to indicate that it was, then she says that anything that happened after that is null and void. So her hope is to go into this probable cause examination and get the case thrown out based on that. She also told Abi that they will likely offer him a plea deal. He has no criminal record. This is a first-time offense for him. The case is questionable at best, and she's hoping that they'll offer him a misdemeanor charge. That being said, we may be in for a long haul here. Abi, at least at this point, has made up his mind that he will not take a plea deal, that he will not admit guilt for something that he believes he didn't do, and he will fight this all the way to a jury trial if that's what it takes. Both myself and Abi's attorney explained to him that he has a really good chance of winning this case, But he needs to understand that if he doesn't win at trial with a jury, the consequences are not just a little bad, they're really bad. He's facing two years in prison for a felony, not to mention the fact that if he has a felony conviction on his record, he can kiss his career goodbye. With all that being said, Abi said that he understands that, but he believes in what he's doing, and he's willing to fight and take the risk. Now, I can't say that I agree with that decision, but I will say that I admire him for making it. Since I believe that what happened to Abby was that he was targeted, and he was pushed into a resisting charge, which is something that is very common. Sadly, it's all too common. When an officer is not getting what they want out of somebody, and I'm not saying all officers, but there are officers out there that will do this, when they're not getting what they want out of someone, they will poke and prod them into a resisting charge because it's an easy charge to put on someone. The law is so vague on this that any noncompliance whatsoever can be considered resisting and obstructing. And when you're dealing with the underprivileged, someone driving an old minivan that the windows don't work on, they know that they're going to end up with a public defender. And they know that all a public defender is going to do is ask for a plea. But in this case, this officer messed with the wrong person. I believe that 99% of the police officers out there are good people doing great work to protect us. And I honor and admire and respect every single one of them. But just because 99% are good does not mean that the other 1% get a pass. This officer's behavior and conduct was not acceptable. And now someone is about to pay the price for that, a huge price for that, if they don't fight. And that's what we do. That's what Truth and Justice is all about. It's about fighting for the people that cannot fight for themselves. The power of this movement is that we all get behind these fights and that we fight them together and we drive forward and we let the powers that be know that there is still power of the people and we will not lay down and let our rights be trampled. Whether all of you or some of you or none of you are behind me on this, I will continue to fight for Abi until we see this thing through to the end. This case may seem like small potatoes compared to the other cases that we're working, but that's the whole point. It's not about numbers. It's not about statistics. It's about people. Individual people. And it's about truth and justice. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all of the music for the show. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to Daniel Schaefer for editing the podcast. Thank you to today's sponsors, TV and Stamps.com for funding today's program. And thank you to every single one of you for sticking with this as we move from one case to the next and continue to bring truth and justice through our broken criminal justice system. Keep sending in those thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can send new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Follow me on Twitter at TruthJusticePod or follow the Truth and Justice Facebook page. Remember that next week on Tuesday the 15th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be doing a listener call-in for you to ask questions for next week's episode. I'm looking forward to hearing from every one of you, but as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.